Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unexplained World Internet Radio Broadcast with your host, Edward Cheney, a paranormal, spiritual observer, and psychic reader, along with Annette, a high priestess and psychic reader. The Unexplained World is a location where the border between the natural and supernatural may become nothing more than fuzzy, so enjoy. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Sunday, August 26th broadcast of The Unexplained World with your host, Seth Shanahan, and that's me, and Annette, High Priestess of the Covenant of White Heart. Hello, Annette. You there? I'm here, Ed. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm just peachy. Uh, <laughs> Good. <laughs> I was pushing the, uh, I dialed the wrong number the first time I tried to get in. Uh, <laughs> so it was like, oh, man, get them fingers working, Ed. You know what I'm saying? Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, how does it feel to have some dry weather out by you? Oh, finally, we finally had a day. <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was going to rain for the rest of the you know for the rest of the year or something. I didn't know what to expect. Poor kids are going nuts in the house. <laughs> well, uh, let's be grateful. It's rain and not snow. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not going wood. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, hopefully, everybody's surviving. Hopefully, um, the listeners that may have been. Stuck in the flood areas and that. Hopefully they they're surviving. Oh, you know. And those okay. without electricity, hang in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been a rough, rough uh, last two weeks, I would say. You know, as far as the weather goes. But our guest tonight is our new inner circle member for the unexplained world. And let me click on, I'm trying to click him on. My board is moving. His name is David Kump, okay? And he covers an area I'm fascinated by. But yet time restraints keeps me from further investigating the subjects of UFOs and such. And I said his name is Mr. David Kump, and his passion is the UFOs and such. David, are you there? Oh, yes, Ed. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you doing tonight? Oh, very good. For the listeners to get familiar with who you are and Annette to get familiar with who you are, um, would you like to explain a little bit of your background? Well, background, I've always been interested in photography, art. Kind of ended up with real estate management in my background. And it's kind of brought me all over between Joliet, where I grew up, the Chicago area, and now I find myself back in Joliet, and through all those little travels professionally, one of my big kind of interests or hobbies was keeping up with UFO phenomenon, and luckily, when I ended up in Evanston for 12 years... I happen to be right next door to Northwestern University, where it was Alan Hynek who was the professor of astronomy there and also headed up Project Blue Book for the government. Oh, really? Which, he, was be, he was behind Blue Book, huh? Yeah, he was actually the driving force, or I should say the spokesman for the government behind that project, which kind of ended when he was asked to explain things to the general population that kind of contradicted what he was learning in his investigations. So he did something very interesting. He started his own organization, the Center for UFO Studies, 
and he founded that in Evanston. It's located on Peterson Avenue in Chicago. And he had a very close associate, worked with him through the years, Jacques Vallée. And Jacques was a kind of a communication specialist at Northwestern, computer scientist. And it just so happened to be, in one of the buildings I managed, lived people that knew both those men and worked closely with them. So it was through that kind of association that it just kind of uh, fed on my interest in the subject anyway. And I kind of stayed even closer to it, read everything I could get my hands on, got involved with the Center for UFO Studies up there. And then it kind of led to my little, almost accidental investigation of something kind of related to Area 51 out in Las Vegas. Okay, let's take this, let's take it step by step. Uh, Annette, feel free to jump in. Um, UFOs, how long, for how long have they been basically on record being reported? Well, in the United States, I would say it, it, everyone seems to point to 1947 when Kenneth Arnold had sightings and, and shortly after that was this whole Roswell business. Mm-hmm. possibly an incident where some crafts went down there could have been bodies recovered uh, and all your listeners have heard all those stories over and over through books and the media and movies and interestingly enough it was shortly after that incident that it seemed like the CIA put some laws into effect that kind of put a total blanket of secrecy over uh, what Congress or the CIA or the Defense Department would tell the general public and give them, let's say, the right not to tell certain things, keep certain things secret. And one of the major concerns I have is the budget that fuels all of this seems to be secret. And shortly after the Roswell incidents, it, it, it is kind of alleged that the craft and the bodies were taken to Wright-Patterson Air Force for examination or experimentation or whatever have you. And yet, Ohio would be considered not in the middle of nowhere. And it wasn't long before I think the people that really run things behind the scenes realized they needed to have a little more secrecy in what they were dealing with. And Area 51 seemed to be a logical choice. Area 51 being a part of the Nellis Air Force test portion of the middle Nevada desert. It's kind of where the Manhattan Project was tested and the atom bomb was set off. Mm -hmm. So that area seemed to, and I can tell you, I drove out as close as I could get to Area 51, and I mean it was in the middle of nowhere. You drive for hours outside of Las Vegas, and you won't see a car or a truck or anything. And the closest you can actually come is Rachel, Nevada, and that would be the last stop before... Uh, trying to climb over the mountains and get a peek at this secret base that exists out there. How many miles would you say Area 51 is from Las Vegas? Uh, It's approximately 100 miles, something like that. Okay, so it's it's a couple-hour drive in the desert. Yeah, it's a two- to three-hour drive. Yeah. All right, after, okay, so you say it goes back to about 1940-something, and that's officially, I guess, you, official records. Official but, records. But if, but if you go back, they, they're even saying that at times, or what they viewed on, what would you say, pyramids? Oh, and that, maybe you know a little bit about this. When you um, get yeah. official 
the, the walls and everything, you know, drawings of spacecrafts or whatever uh, yeah, they're, that they're, they're interpret anyways to be spacecrafts. Right, I've seen these pictures in books, and I'm sure your listeners have, where they try to make a correlation between almost biblical drawings that seem to show something that could be construed as some kind of craft from outer space. Uh, when I said officially, meaning when the media or the consciousness of Americans seem to pick up on this through the media, that was mid to late 40s. Mm-hmm. But sure, you you can look throughout literature. Uh, oh, there's, there's, sure, it could go back thousands of years. So if you're referring to cave drawings that have some strange objects that sure don't look like they're anything worldly, or what they would know of at the time, anyway. Oh, yeah. it, exactly. Yep. Yeah. You know, oh. while we're touching on that prehistoric um, timeline, there. Would you say, David, that you, um, you know, you hear all these, you know, show, you see all these shows that talk about it, but things that were created, like the pyramids, but created with a plan of higher intelligence from those that existed at the time? Well, that has certainly always been a mystery, and I get a big kick out of the way you'll hear how these things are explained by our standards, by our kind of three-dimensional reality, or by our science. You know, certain people go on and try to explain exactly how they were built, that, no, that's not so unusual. Here's how it was done. And I find that almost comical because given today's construction methods, the precise way those structures are built, you, you virtually couldn't even duplicate it today. Right. <laughs> and yet, you know, they'll go on and on with an elaborate, uh, you know, the amount of horses and pulling these, these timbers with these giant stones on them for miles through the desert. And what, what's funny, without any thought to find, let's say it took uh, 50,000 slaves working for 10 years to build it. Well, the question might become, well, who's feeding these people? Is there enough water for them to drink? And did they have enough horses to pull those timbers? To So in other words, they seem to leave out little details that we're expected to take for granted. Mm-hmm. And yet that could be the whole issue or reason why it's not even believable that it could have been built by our means, way back. Or even the endurance that would be needed to work in that type of heat and everything in the middle of the desert by the men, you know. Um, I know just trying to get through this 90-degree uh, weather we had for the last, you know, week or so was tough. Imagine doing that on a daily basis, what, 12, 14 hours a day? What the slaves were basically, what they, like you said, try to feed us, that they were supposed to be doing? Well, you know, if you use the old, certainly you attract more bees with honey. It, it's hard to imagine that extremely great things get done when you're forcing somebody to do it against their will. I mean, I find that a little strange in itself. And look at it this way. The amount of slaves it would have taken, you couldn't have controlled it. You would have had to have an equal army of guards forcing them to do it mm-hmm. or how could that have possibly worked uh, so those are the kind of questions I ask in my logic that that doesn't seem real possible to me okay okay David assuming real quick Ed <laughs> assuming mm-hmm. that um, uh, aliens or outside people unknown to the earth at the time that those things were built what do you think the purpose of those kinds of structures might be? Well, here Was we are. navigation? Well, here's another interesting aspect of this. Imagine whatever these powers are out there. Okay, sure. Creatures or 
I'm not sure what to call them. God knows where they're from or what all that means. You, you could be dealing with a reality that is so many notches above our three-dimensional reality that even if they were to sit you down and explain exactly what these things are that perhaps they left behind, or uh, look at this crazy subject that was going on in the 1970s, with all of these cattle mutilations. Yeah. It was certainly alleged that there were craft seen in close proximity to these events. Now, let's say there was some UFO phenomenon connected to that. I'm saying they could sit you down and explain what they were doing, and I don't think we'd quite get it. Okay. I, I don't think it's worth even that speculation. Interesting. Okay. Why would they be interested in us if there is another, um, I don't know what you want to call them. You want to call them Martians? You want to call them, uh, what is well, the how, analogy? Would, yeah. Well, we're serving, we're serving some higher entity. We're serving their purpose. Whether you believe in religion and God and all of those teachings or you believe in a creative energy or a super race that started life here on this planet, we're serving someone's purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, you might be cautious to think it's not necessarily a good benevolent service. Uh, this could be, in fact, when you look at the state of the world uh, since the beginning of civilization, with wars and suffering, and it seems like who's ever really controlling things here, uh, there seems to be a lot of pain and misery and suffering, and that could be by design. So, again, th this could all be something you may not even want to know the answer to. Yeah. But that doesn't stop uh, where I'm coming from, for the, the, and I thank you for having me on to voice my ideas, that doesn't stop us from possibly demanding to be a little more in the know about this to those people that possibly are a little more in control and hiding a lot of this from the public. And especially if you look at it from a taxpayer situation, and that's kind of what I've done. I don't know if you look closely at that binder I sent you. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I will eventually get to that. I'm still trying to feed the listeners your background, your 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 uh, approach to things, your um, um, basically a form of education. You know, well, right, that, because we're going to have you on in the in the future also. You know. What we don't get to today, we will, you know, pick up uh, in the future also. <clears throat> but it's always good to let, you know, people know, you know, set their minds on, you know, where you're coming from, where, you know, um, try to hit questions that they may have. I mean, they can even give us a call at 646-915-9653 with questions. Um, <clears throat> the tax thing, yeah. We will get into that. Um, well, I would say the word then is truth. In other words, I'm in pursuit of truth. Whether we understand it or not, that's secondary. That's, that's for in the future. Mm -hmm. But to first attack and accept and grab at what the truth actually is, only after that's exposed can you actually deal with it and try to make some sense out of it, but to deny a possible truth out there to, uh, and again, the people that are actually paying for all this nonsense, uh, that's something I think everybody should pretty much demand, and if it takes kind of a revolution of thought and uh, people complaining about it, I, I think that's something I'd like to ignite. The the um 
let's cover some bases here um, as far as truths, as far as facts go. Now, you and I discussed the, the idea that there's even been astronauts who have claimed, allegedly claimed, that they've seen UFOs while in space, while on a, you know, any of their missions, etc. Is that true? Well, uh, one can only take them on their word. I have no right. reason to doubt the most wild speculation of anything I hear or read uh, because I've seen something we'll get into a little later in the show uh, mm -hmm. with this workforce that uh, travels back and forth to Area 51. But for me to hear an astronaut's claim or let's say an airline pilot's claim or let's say a policeman's claim of many incidents that have happened through the years, I have no reason to doubt it. And one of the reasons I don't doubt any of these accounts is because of the way that they're almost laughed away or explained away or not touched by the media or uh, just excused away by official Air Force, government, debunkers, whatever you want to call them. And the more they deny these, these just tens of thousands of reports through the years, uh, just makes me, and, and as secretive as they try to become in denying certain things that everybody claims is fact or that they have experienced, the more that that is denied, the more you tend to uh, believe it or wildly speculate or just imagine mm -hmm. what they're hiding. And well, I'll, I'll have say more this to lose, here. Yeah. Now that you mentioned about the astronauts, this, this is another... Uh, I, w I will talk about a company out there that is quite mysterious and secretive and involved at Area 51. But I will tell you this, it was about 10 years ago, I opened up the newspaper, I was living in Evanston at the time, and a small paragraph, very small, about the middle of the paper, talked about how a contract to manage NASA was given to Lockheed Martin. Now, I'm very familiar with Lockheed Martin, they make aircraft and they make defense department equipment, and they're a huge mega defense contractor corporation. But there was this little paragraph that they were given a contract, and they manage NASA. So what we're dealing with, as most people probably don't realize, NASA, which was certainly a, the National Aeronautical Space Administration since... I grew up and was old enough to see it on TV and understood what that meant. It's in the hands of a private firm, is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. and again, I'm not saying they're not doing a good job with it. What I'm saying is, how did that happen? When did that happen? Who made that decision? Because it's our money that's paying for that, that's paying a private organization to run NASA. And when a private organization is running a space agency that may or may not want certain things that the astronauts experience to be told to the public, I can see how that could get covered up. And especially when a Lockheed Martin is working with EG&G, is working with the Carlyle Group, and all of a sudden all these companies are controlling what the American public are going to be told, which is fine, except that we're paying for it. I have to keep coming back to that. Yeah. The, um, okay. Now, this recently, I think within the last year or two, there was basically a very strong sighting over O'Hare Airport. Um, even on MySpace, they were posting some of the transcripts from, uh, I guess you could say, uh, the towers and that to, uh, and the pilots. Do you have any background on that? 
Well, just I'm sure I know what you have read, and I was very interested in that when that happened. I do know that there were three or four pilots, two of which seemed to not want to even report this for fear of job security. I mean, mm-hmm. it is still looked down upon and kept out of the general reporting, whether you, you're a pilot reporting it to the FAA. Uh, air traffic controllers go through this all the time as well. So I've read about these pilots that some were torn between whether or not to even report it. A couple other pilots were very open about what they saw and didn't care what anybody thought of them. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, yeah because they um, I I got a I got a clip of one of the news stations, the stuff that was going on off the air, and they were yeah there was a lot of it make you a believer you know, and I believe I recall them saying we can we can report this we can't report that you know this and that so um, yeah it seemed like they didn't want all the facts out of what the pilot, you know, because it was basically what they were showing was behind the scenes, um, you know, they, keep the ca- they had a camera running off off screen, and what this person posted was uh, behind the scenes type of stuff. And, yeah, and so what's, what's your belief? Do you believe I that there are others out there? Absolutely. There's no reason for me to doubt the tens of thousands of witnesses, of very credible witnesses of these stories, not just from the United States, but all over the world. I've got books and books and books by these people. And one thing I'll tell you, if you go to the Center for UFO Studies and you go to the metal file cabinets and start leafing through the file after file of case after case from all over the world with photographs and are are you to think that these are fake photos and these people are making it up and for every fake photo and person that is mentally unstable and just kind of made up this story I can tell you there's tens of thousands of people that are very stable and aren't making these things up Right. They're simply trying to report what they experienced, what they saw. There's no reason I would doubt any of them. And the more that a government official is standing in front of a microphone and trying to push it off as a non-event, all that does is strengthen my belief more. The more you try to cover something up, obviously you're getting somewhere, and this is ultimately what happened with Alan Hynek. He was put in a position to report on a specific incident that happened in the state of Michigan, and it was, your your listeners will somewhat remember this if you followed UFO stories from the past. He was basically told to say it had something to do with the reflection of lights off swamp gas. Do you remember that term? (laughs) It's been used a few times, yeah. That is when, and he, not wanting to do that, went through with that. And the fallout he had and the, the, the reaction he saw of the people that he had interviewed and studied this case, that was it. He told the government to go stick it. You can take Project Blue Book and shove it down the toilet if you're going to tell me how the results are supposed to be deciphered to the American public. And that's when he started his own organization. And he did some terrific work Mm -hmm. through his own independent investigations. And Jacques Vallée stood by his side, and he went on to write countless books on the subject. Okay. We have a caller. Let's. uh, The caller's from... Five seven zero area code. Let me try to get him on the line. Hello, caller from five seven zero. Are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for uh, taking my call, gentlemen. Go ahead. 
Uh, question for you. Have you seen the recent reports that there is possibly active and current Martian life? That I'm not aware of. Where, where are you referring to? Are we talking about uh, what, what area is this coming out of? It's actually a recent report. Um, the observer that they have up there on Mars actually found a possibility that some type of a basic form of amoeba life actually exists currently right now, which I thought was fascinating because to me that would be almost proof that if something is still existent there, there may have been life long ago in a much different form than what we have now. Well, that's interesting. If you listen to Richard Hoagland, I'm sure you've heard him on other shows or read his literature, he has always stood behind the fact that life did exist on Mars. It could still be there. It's possible uh, life from that ended up on Earth came from the planet Mars. And, yeah, he's someone that uh, has been virtually believing that for years and, and not afraid to speak his mind about it. I, I've, I've read a little bit about him. I've actually read some of his uh, some of his uh, published work, and it's very fascinating. I think it's a great possibility, and it's also something interesting to think that if we are, in essence, Martians, then are there even any Earthlings, really, if we're all Martians? Maybe it's just a complete different people that came here because there was something that went terrible on their planet, on our planet, which was there, had to get to a new place, and it might explain the intelligence that was made to build pyramids and Stonehenge and everything else. Wasn't there a movie uh, based on that where um, our, our, our astronauts went to Mars? And I can't remember the name of the movie. And they actually see, showed the astronauts how, this all, how Earth came up about because of a tragedy on Mars. And they had to distribute some of the people, find places to go. And United in the United States, uh, the Earth was one of the locations. You know, it was a very good movie. I can't remember, recall the name of it, but um, it's about five or six years old now. I think I know what you mean, though. I think I know what you mean. Well, yeah. Yeah, to add that information, that there is a report, like I said, that basic Martian life still exists as we speak, and I think that it's just a good testament to the fact that we are. Perhaps not alone. How could we be alone with so many different galaxies and planets? Yeah, I mean, it would be, you know, whoever you think your creator may be or believe it is, it'd be kind of, um, what would you say, Annette? Would you say it'd be kind of uh, self-centered to think we're the yeah, only be, ones? It would be vain, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so. You probably think this song is about you. Okay, gentlemen, thank you. Thank you, caller. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, Ed and Annette, that, yeah, and it's always uh, always been the little Mars connection as far back as I can remember. Even the, the first literature I ever read is probably a 10-year-old about UFOs. There's always been the Mars connection. And, I mean, obviously that comes from somewhere in uh, our whole psychosis of wondering about all of this. But uh, there was a very classic line that goes back to the, and you remember the, the little caption they used to do it with, maybe it was Hollywood, maybe it wasn't, the little green men from Mars. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a classic line that uh, a farmer that happened upon the Roswell scene, and then he ended up in the nearest town where he was put on the radio to describe what he saw when he was at the crash site. And the first thing he said was, well, I'll tell you this. They're not green. They're gray. Yeah. And I thought uh, that it, was pretty interesting. Is that where the terminology gray? Well, I uh, do, well, even back in 1947, obviously the reference to Martians was this little green man thing. Uh, and yet, as it's been reported, the incident in Roswell seemed to have these little gray creatures aboard. I thought that was kind of interesting. 
We're going to take one moment, David, and we got some announcements to make, okay? Annette, I'll start the first one, and I'll leave you carry on with the announcements you have, okay? Uh, first, I will be doing readings on Monday night, September 10th, from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. at Champs in Burbank, Illinois. Champs is located at 6501 West 79th Street in Burbank, approximately, I would say, six to seven blocks east of Harlem Avenue on 79th. Our readings will be POM psychometry, which is basically taking the uh, the person I'm reading's hand and putting it between mine, and uh, then reading them that way, and that's a good form of uh, getting answers to questions. Then psychometry with items of a loved one who's passed away. Just bring the item or two with you, make it something personal like glasses or watch, stuff that they um, had on them, and I will attempt to pick up the readings or the energy from there. Fees is just a gift offering of your choice. More t- details can be found at our website, theunexplainedworld.com, under the events section. Annette, go ahead. Uh, in September, on the 19th, out in northwestern Indiana at a place called McGinnis Pub of Michigan City, Indiana, uh, we'll be having a paranormal discussion hour. Uh, Pat's going to be running that for us at 6 p.m. to 7 p.m., and then 7 to midnight will be our psychic fair there. I will be participating in that as well. Um, Doing your past life readings, right? Past life readings and tarot as well. Choose between the two, absolutely. Uh, that's for love donations. And then coming up in October, uh, Ed and I will be doing our Haunted Northwestern Indiana tour. That's October the 6th, and you can find out more information about that by going to theunexplainedworld.com. We are able, looks like, to add two new locations to this tour, and I actually have also some new historical information about one of the sites that we um, always visit and some updates on the Tree of Death. So we've got cool. that as well as Diana of the Dunes and should be a lot of fun. And uh, one of the locations is McGinnis, you said. And That's also, right. McGinnis is haunted, actually. So they'll be letting and, us uh, tour through the haunted area of that pub. And the other place is uh, what's is the Devil's name Bridge. Of? The Devil's Bridge. That's yes, right. And we'd, like to ask, we'd like to thank Patty for... Uh, Assisting us in that, Patty of Mystic Investigations. Right. Okay. Um, one final announcement. Um, on our last broadcast, we had Ursula Bielski, and and she and I talked about what we created, which we call is Beyond the Veil, exclusive haunted location outings limited to the number of people who can participate. Locations like the Senator John Humphreys' this, uh, house, historical house, Frankie's Roadhouse, um, those two are filling up very quickly. In November, my dream location on that, a haunted, and you've heard me talk about wanting to find one for years, a haunted mm-hmm. bed and breakfast sitting on 70 acres of haunted woods. And that's also near uh, Starve Rock, which we'll be visiting too, and other, and other haunted locations. Let's go to our website, theunexplainedworld.com, in the event section, and you can see basically everything that Ed and I have talked about. Okay. Do uh, you have any other announcements in it? Uh, that does it for me. If you, um, yeah. Well, let me good. announce. Go ahead. Let me announce That's our it. next show, why we still got the people, is Sunday, December, or September, whoa, December, September 9th, with uh, Rhonda, who will be doing multi-card tarot readings for callers. So Rhonda's part of the... Uh, Part of uh, our psychic fair, she's one of our readers that we have there, and we figured we uh, give her a little exposure on, on the radio broadcast. Okay, David, I know so, that once, yeah, one sub, could, thank you for standing by on that. Yeah, if uh, I could tell your listeners and Annette, she probably doesn't know this as well, I work at a very historic theater in Joliet, and actually Ed came to see me. Oh, 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 oh. That's all on the hush-hush right now. Well, not your feelings when we went down to the basement. Oh, yeah, I know, but I don't even want to give away the name of the theater yet. Oh, this is good. 
Okay. <laughs> even Ed's even involved in cover-up, David. <laughs> yeah, I'm involved. Because, David, let me just say one thing, okay? One thing, Annette knows this, and she'll swear by it. Okay. It's a ghosty ghost world. <laughs> yeah, the ghosty ghost world, okay? And uh, so let's just, uh, let's just keep... Let's just Let's just keep that on the hush and hush for right now until everything is uh, yay or nay, okay? No, <laughs> um, no, 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 no. Uh, Got to keep that on the hush and hush until uh, we can make an official announcement. Yeah, now I see how the secrecy thing works. Oh, yeah, because you know what? A lot of people listen to what Ed's doing, okay? Um, all the stuff that we're talking about that we just announced, that had to be pre-planned, and everything had to be set in stone before we announced it. So we can become the ones doing it, okay? Oh, boy, so. that makes total sense. Yeah. We got, so. Try and keep legitimate. That's probably what the government would say. Well, oh! <laughs> I do got an uncle that's, uh, all, this uh, <laughs> was a prison captain in that, but he's retired, so. Okay. We want to get on to, uh, David, I will leave the day we make the announcement on here, I will bring you on, okay? Because you, 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 uh, you stood there and picked up what I was feeling, and I'm sure you confirmed it now with the one individual that has a lot of stories in there. So. Okay. Okay. There's a. We're talking about the E G and G terminal, yeah, McCarran Airport in Las Vegas, and it's tied to Area 51. Yeah. Now this is really where I, I thank you for letting me come on the show to talk about this. This is where I really uh, have something I believe I can tell your listeners. If many of them are aware of the whole Area 51 mystique and what's been alleged out there with the UFO connection, everything from uh, perhaps they have craft there that they're reverse engineering and learning things from and thus uh, making advances in our own military defense or even other household items for crying out loud. But that's what is alleged that happens at Area 51. Now, Area 51 being out in the middle of nowhere, basically, and part of the secrecy is it does have a little mountain cap surrounding the entire base. Once you get out there, there's a, a kind of a serious little mountain you need to get up on the top of if you're going to expect to look down and see this base. And it was in 1995 that the government took another 13-mile perimeter to stop people like myself, I suppose, from trying to climb to the top of this mountain to have a peek over the edge, which a lot of people did for many years trying to see what they could see and allege what they could allege. And Who was the TV host that was stopped? Montel Williams did something a few years back. and. Yeah. He gathered up a group of about 20 people in five or six Hummers, and they went. They set out from Las Vegas, and, and they took that drive. And they really tried to get up to a gate, let's say, that is probably only used very, very seldom by, by large trucks bringing things in. And he was stopped by the security firm that guards the base, which is Wackenhut, Wackenhut Corporation. And it's a well-known name. They're, they're involved in security, everything from securing a stadium. You might go to a ball game ad all the way to, and here we go again, like Lockheed Martin, Wackenhut has contracts with the federal government to run our prison systems, if you can believe that one. But so here's a firm that has very serious people guarding this base, and uh, they don't care who you are. Montel Williams went up there, and he'll tell you the story that uh, he had a gun pointed at him and was told to pack up, turn around, and get lost. Now, in 95, a friend of mine, Bill, and I went as far as we could just to see kind of push that little perimeter to, to see what that meant 
how far you could actually get. Well, basically, you can get to Rachel, Nevada, and that's as far as you can go unless you want to get involved with these people from Wackenhut and take your chances. We weren't really interested in that. But we did find the little Ailey Inn and talk to the owners oh. there. Had a nice little lunch and... <laughs> You know, it'd be interesting to see the characters that hang out there because everybody's got a story to tell, so that was fun. But yeah. it, it occurred to me after that little experience that, all right, look, nobody's going to get near Area 51 anymore. You can forget that. But anyone that's read the literature or the books, they maybe heard of something called Janet flights from a Karen airport. The, the workforce that is there every day does not drive out there. You couldn't drive out there. It's just not only is it too far, you couldn't really secure properly if if you had five, six hundred people driving in and out of there every day. So what they do is fly the entire workforce from the Karen Airport in Las Vegas to Area 51 and back six days a week, Monday through Friday. It's It's a pretty full, busy schedule, at least 500 people a day. And on Saturday, it's a little lighter amount of people go. And what's interesting, it's it's this very edge corner of the airport that I had read in books about Janet flights and this strange company, EG&G, flying these workers back and forth to the base. So the following year, Bill and I decided, you know, maybe everyone's looking at the wrong part of this. Maybe we need to look at where this starts, at EG&G, which is a private company, a little terminal building off to the corner of the airport, and just so happened to be down the street from the Luxor Hotel, which we stayed at. And at that end of the strip, you, you are kind of closest to the airport, and in our little, trying to get a little closer, we've actually found an apartment complex across the street from this EG&G terminal, and EG&G, here's a company that, uh, you know, it was three names, it was this Edgerton, Germishausen, and Greer, and in actually back in the late 40s, early 50s, this company pioneered high-speed photographics. And they actually developed and invented the strobe light for photographic use. So it was a very precise hmm. engineering, mainly in, in, in photographic techniques when it started. And they were involved even in the Manhattan Project in testing and photographing the, the effects of the atomic bomb. So they were right in place out there anyway. And then when this idea to make Area 51 the secret base, they were like tapped to kind of control it. They were to interview possible workforce and fly them back and forth to work every day. Now, that all sounds fairly harmless until you realize this Janet fleet of aircraft, there's 737s and there's six of them. Now these are serious airline jets. You've flown on 737s, you didn't even realize it, but you know, like Southwest Airlines, they're pretty much, all their flights, all their planes are 737s. Mm-hmm. And the particular six that EG&G operate from McCarran, they're the 737-200 model. They hold 118 people, but more importantly, where I put this whole thing under the microscope, they hold 4,725 gallons of fuel. And the only reason I bring that up, I thought to myself, I don't know what this is costing, but if you want to run six 737s, six days a week, back and forth to Area 51 with all these workers, what on earth is that costing because, guess what, that's your tax money paying for it, whether you like it or not, whether you know anything about it or not. Go into what you were talking about, what you observed as far as 
the people, the workers. Well, now you're now you come to the high strangeness of this. That's 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 the interesting part. So imagine we're on the 18th floor of the Luxor, and we just happen to, just by luck of the draw, we happen to have the 18th floor peering out toward McCarran Airport and toward this very little corner of EG&G where the terminal and these planes are. So with the highest powered binoculars I could get my hands on, we're kind of observing just from our hotel room because we saw these little Janet flight jets coming back. And they landed, and the workers got out, and we thought, well, that's interesting. We'll have to check this out the next morning. So the next morning, bright and early, maybe 6 o'clock, I'm up early every day anyway, I start observing all these cars pulling into that parking lot at the EG&G terminal. And I have all the workers get out of their cars. They go into the terminal building. And that's... 6 to 6.30. Between 6.30 and 7, they're in that terminal building. And right about 7 in the morning, they all walk out of that terminal building to load on to these six 737s just sitting out next to the terminal. And there's no... It's not like the airline terminal where you walk across that jetway platform there the, the you'd walk out of this terminal building you're on the pavement you walk up to those steps that go take you up to the door of the jet and just from the luxor hotel with binoculars i noticed the strangest thing the lines of people going toward each jet were single file walking one foot one step at a time. I don't mean a stride. I mean one step, then another stop. step. Take another step, then stop. another step with virtually two foot in front of them to the next person and two foot behind them to the next person. And the longer I looked at this, the only thing I thought was, oh, my God, they look like they're in a trance. Mm. I mean, at first I thought it's a little comical, but then I got the weirdest feeling watching how slow this line, each line, progressed up to the steps of the jet, up the steps, into the jet. It, it took damn near 30 minutes for all of these people in that crazy little march of theirs to get on those jets. And I said to my friend Bill, I said, look, tell me what you see. And I had no binoculars. And he looked. And he was quiet for the longest time. And he just handed them back to me and said, that's very strange. So he saw what I was seeing. And that's when we knew, all right, you know what, we need a closer look. So the next morning, when all those cars pulled in at 6 o'clock to go into the terminal building, stay for about 20 minutes or a half hour, and then do that little crazy march, we positioned ourselves across the street from that terminal building at this apartment complex. I actually found a little, kind of a little shed where it looked like they had their satellite dish and a master TV antenna. And that TV antenna had the little kind of ladder that you could climb, and I was able to get on the roof of this thing. And from there, we're now we're quite a bit closer. And again, to observe that, trance that these people seem to have been in to get aboard those airplanes made me think two things. It's either a hypnotic trance or it's drug-induced. But I can tell you this. There's no way you could get 500 people to possibly consciously act like that in that kind of unison. The two foot apart, the little crazy arms at their side. I mean... It was bizarre, it was weird, and I... It would almost be like having prisoners under control walking, you know, if you were talking some type of, uh, I guess you could say, communist type of, uh, you know, well, you situation. Well, 
you asked me earlier, Ed, what do you believe? What do you believe you are... Well, let me tell you, I believe anything after seeing that. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you or your listeners are at all familiar with MK Ultra and the experiments that were done with mind control, and, you know, these are things, you know, and, and, and it goes back to... That was all done in the 60s. It ended about 1966, but they were doing mind control experiments with uh, a number of drugs. And this is where the use of sodium pentothal came from as far as a truth serum. It came from the MK Ultra program. And okay. anyone that said, oh my gosh, there's no way the government's doing anything like that, they were just debunked and probably made to look foolish, and yet, years later, yes, it, it's well-known fact, it's well-documented, just like the first time people heard of remote viewing in the early 1970s, and they thought, well, there's no way there's an actual program about remote viewing. It's just not true. Well, guess what? Yes, it is true. And it's extremely well documented that that was going on for years. So what I observed, this workforce at Area 51 loading onto these jets in some kind of trance state, I'm here to tell you, we're paying for some crazy nonsense. And people need to take a look at this and say, all right, enough of this nonsense. What is going on there? That's our money paying for this. And regardless of the past history of how the Defense Department, and now under the guise of Homeland Security, national interest, this is all nonsense because just let me tell you the calculations of the jet fuel, and then you can kind of extrapolate from that what you think the real expense of what's going on out there. Okay, we got about three minutes. Imagine a company like EG&G has a contract for these employees to get them back and forth. I track jet fuel prices from 1992 through yesterday. That's 16 years. And I track these based on the 4,725 gallons that each of those aircraft hold. And each of those aircraft flying back and forth daily, six days a week, times six of those planes. And guess what I came up with, a yearly figure coming down to 16 years of this, $50,918,868. Now look, that's just a tiny portion of what EG&G is doing out there, at the very least, they're, they're spending millions of dollars on jet fuel to fly these people back and forth. What is this nonsense about putting them in some kind of trance? Who's paying for that? Well, we are. What does it mean? Nobody wants to give an account or an explanation of any of that. And I say that these days have got to end. What, are we going to have 25 more years of this nonsense? And how much of our tax dollars are going to this? Now. I got my, you know, we got about a minute, 30 seconds left. I don't know which way I look at that. You know, I prefer to know the information uh, of what's going on in there. I definitely would be curious. I think most of the world would be curious. Um, I don't think we, I think we're, and I think Annette would agree, we're at a stage in life where nothing really shocks us anymore. Um, (laughs) Do you agree, Annette? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think it would be just, you know, out of curiosity, <clears throat> because basically, you know, as we see, we really don't have no say over anything that goes on. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Well, no, I understand, and that's what the people that are in control are counting on. So what I'm saying is, I'm not saying stop paying taxes. I love this country. I I enjoy living here. Mm-hmm. I'm proud to pay my taxes. But sooner or later, somebody's going to start explaining what our money is being used for. Yeah, that's going to have to happen. Yeah. David, I'd like to say thank you. I you know what I would like 
for the next subject, if you could look it up, you brought up two things. You brought well, one thing. You brought up remote viewing, which I'd definitely be interested in. If you got any uh, resources or information on that, plus that project where they try to make the submarine invisible. You're talking okay. about the Philadelphia experiment. Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll save that for the uh, next time we have you on. If you know, if um, you'd be interested in discussing those. Absolutely. And, uh, I think David, I you have been a fabulous guest. I'm so intrigued. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Well, this was uh, the most fun I've had on a Sunday night, and I don't know how long. <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right. And then give me a call in about two minutes, three okay. minutes, and, uh, David, I'll talk to you in the next day or so, okay? Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Annette. Listeners, thank you very much. David, thank you, and to everybody, a good night. Thank Be you. safe.